Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 128 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Um, hi, everybody. I have an update for my my foot update. Foot update. Oh, we're just foot going wash. right into it. Do you think the people are ready for a foot update? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Oh, sorry. Let's transition. Um, how, How's the weather? How's everyone's feet? <laughs> yeah, okay. There we go. Let's do it. <laughs> let's ease into it. Can you give me an inch update first? <laughs> Stupid. My foot. I can walk now, you guys. It's pretty Ooh. awesome. It feels like... Um, I, I went off my cast where I couldn't put any weight on it, and now then I started to put weight on it, and it was very scary at first, very terrifying. Oh, God. Dylan, describe how I walked. <laughs> you basically walked like you were on a high dive every single step. Yeah, like little <laughs> shuffle. And I got a little cane, and I realized that I was using the cane wrong. You're supposed to put the cane on your good side. Would you guys have known that? Oh, really? I did know that I had a cane for a bit in college. Mm. Was it just a face? <laughs> no, yeah. I had a broken foot like, from rugby. <laughs> you didn't have like a raven's head on the top of it or an eight ball or something? Oh, God, it's Andrew, that cane kid. It was comically medical looking. It was, you know, one of those silver metal <laughs> things with the gray rubber. Oh, wow. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mine was the same, except I chose a fancy, like, what would you call it? Rosewood. Rosewood color. Um, Ooh. <laughs> How long is the uh, the sword inside of your cane, Bailey? Ooh, so long. Longer than you'd expect. <laughs> but so I had that for a few wow. days and it was kind of fun because I could gesticulate with my cane. And, it was like, not fun. She gesticulated mm. everything. And like slam it on the ground <laughs> to get attention. <laughs> but now I'm just walking and I got a little brace and I know like it might sound silly, but it feels like the world has opened again. Oh, I'm happy for you, Bailey. Just don't walk to the bookstore. <laughs> no, certainly not. Have you already walked to a bookstore, Bailey? Yes. <laughs> 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 I didn't buy anything, though. I wanted to just go in and tell the booksellers that my foot was okay. Because last time I was mm-hmm. there, there was a child because I was in the, the crutch thing. And I heard him, he was probably like three, turn to his mother and say, what's wrong with her leg? <laughs> <laughs> and the mom's like, you can ask her. And I said I was a pirate, and he's like, looked at me like he didn't know what a pirate was. So what? Why would you lie to the boy? <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm more upset with the mom. She's dropping her responsibilities. Three years old, you should know what a pirate is. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were saying you shouldn't ask people about their injuries, but actually, I feel like that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Be like, yeah. don't don't be secretive about it. Yeah. But also, be less secretive about pirates. It's just funny <laughs> when the kid's trying to be subtle. You imagine if you said, like, I'm a pirate, and the mom is like, don't lie to my child. <laughs> I, I was explaining that, like, oh, I will get it off in a few weeks. And she's like, oh, Jimmy, isn't the body incredible? And Jimmy was, like, <laughs> uninterested. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my foot update. Da, 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 da. Foot what? update. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out perfectly. I'm so glad we rehearsed that for 30 minutes before we started the podcast. Um. In other news, today's free comic book day. I'm excited. Ooh. Um, we're going to take Maggie out. And this, I'm sure it's going to go perfectly fine. She's not going to freak out and grab all the comics. I mean, this is the one day where it's okay to grab all the comics. I was going to say. That's true. But sometimes it's like you go and you're in a line and you can pick three. And they're like, what are the three you want? And what if Maggie mm. just runs up and takes them all? Mm-hmm. That's on you. You got to tell her about pirates. Yeah, tell her about pirates and then have her steal them all. That's why we're bringing Maggie. So it's like you can pick three. It's like, well, she gets three too, right? So that way we get even more. 
<laughs> That's why we had it, baby. <laughs> That's specifically why for free comic book <laughs> for day. free comic book day. <laughs> I'm gonna come back here with a child. Toby, are you gonna celebrate? Um, you know, I might. There is a comic book store around here. Um, my parents are coming to visit today. Um, so take maybe them. I'll drag them to the comic book store. You can take their comics. They each get <gasps> yeah, three. Yeah, exactly. That's why you have parents. Did I ever tell you, what was it like? It was a few free comic book days ago, but we went in to get one and like we got like a huge handful of like all these free comics and also we bought, we buy stuff there. Yeah, you're supposed to. We do that. Yes. And we went to the checkout and I asked like, uh, like, oh, so do I like scan here or something or do it? And I accidentally had stood in line for an autograph line uh-huh. and they were not employees. They were comic book artists. And were, weren't they like, do you want me to sign it? And you're like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. That's how I found <laughs> out. They asked like, do you want me to sign these comics that I didn't write? It's like, I mean, you can. It's a weird store, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. I, I'm not supposed to be able to visually identify every comic book writer. Mm. I didn't know about Free Comic Book Day until we were married, Dylan. And that was a very exciting thing that you introduced me to. So thank you. Oh. That is the one thing Dylan's brought to the marriage. Yep. Yeah. That's why she has a husband. <laughs> <laughs> For someone who is like me and has participated in no Free Comic Book Days, but I'm aware of it as something you've talked about. Is it a national thing? Is it something that I should be like paying more attention to? I'm not married yet. Is that why I don't know? Yes, that's why you mm. don't know. Yeah. When you sign the marriage license, they hand you a pamphlet and a free comic. <laughs> See, it sucks. We don't send this out live. So people will be listening to this podcast having Free Comic Book Day was today, Saturday, May 5th? Yeah, but Dylan, it gives them a year to get married. Exactly. But... <laughs> Basically, Andrew, you just go to any free comic. It's kind of like independent bookstore day, but better because they actually get stuff. So you go to any comic book store. And it's national. It's not just an L.A. thing. It's national. It's national. And it's not just a California thing. No, we did. Wow. The doubt in Andrew's voice is so strong. I don't think anything's for free. I live in New York. <laughs> You're in Maine this weekend. I bet if you went to the, the one in the Old Port, they'd have it. So, like, artists put out... Like little comics that are usually either like samples of different comics or Mm -hmm. it's like the beginning of a graphic novel. Like this is how I found out about favorites like my my favorite thing is Monsters and Moon Cop. That was our favorite thing is Monsters was a free comic book day. Yeah. And so you get kind of a little taste and they're free. Um, And at some places you can take as many as you want. And other places you can only pick a few. Make sure you research. And then, you know, you get them and you go home and you make a big pile and then you spend the afternoon reading. That's oh, okay. it's absolutely true. So it's like the concept of a drug dealer giving you a sample for free. <laughs> yes. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. First one's always free. But free drug day is May 18th, not <laughs> <laughs> Um. So I have something interesting here. There is apparently, you know, the book you guys read, Dracula. Dracul. Uh, so Dracula, as you guys may remember from reading it, is an epistolary novel. It's a dated series of letters. And apparently it begins, um, the book begins on the date May 3rd and ends on November 10th. And there is a website, which is draculadaily.substack.com, which you can go there and you can put your email in there and they will deliver to you on every date that the letters are dated, the part of the novel that corresponds to that date. Does that make sense? Yeah, like you get a letter yeah. a day. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're getting letters from your BFF, the Harkers. Uh, uh, Harker? Or not Harker. What's yeah, the Jonathan name? Harker. Dylan did a good um, job here, and I'm loath to say that. <laughs> one of my favorite things is there's a Q&A on the page here, mm-hmm. and uh, one, of the, one of the questions is, you're going to email me the whole book? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, the answer is yes, basically, but not all at once. For free? 
I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, What's your question? Let's say that I am in Transylvania and I'm only awake at night. Can I still get this Substack? <laughs> what do you think, digital Dracula? <laughs> is your is your computer also nocturnal or? Oh, oh, I hear some weird scratching. Have to go. Also, okay. I mean, yeah, like, good question. It's not insane to get long emails, like a long letter. I think it's great. I think it would be cool if you actually got handwritten letters in the mail. That'd be. That, I think that's the paid service. It costs um, two marriages. <laughs> the mailman would start noticing, like, man, they're getting a lot of letters from Transylvania. Why are they all written in blood? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I saw that. I thought it was just a fun thing to mention. You guys like the book, um, so and you've already read it, so probably you don't want to do it. But if anybody out there wants to read the book uh, in real time, as it was, well, I really like the book. I think it was a five star for me, so maybe I'll do it. I'm not afraid. <laughs> oh, Bailey, that's that would count as shame. I would count that as shame. <laughs> no. That's getting a book. Speaking of shame, um, oh. does anybody have any? No. Oh. I have no shame except that I'm ashamed that I haven't used a bookstore gift certificate that I have yet that I got Ooh. for my birthday to Rough Draft in Kingston. Thank you, Tessa. I just have not had a chance to go to Kingston yet. So stay tuned for future shame. <laughs> I also don't have shame. So wow. uh, guys, I think we've been too good. We don't have any content for the podcast. We have to start having shame. No, 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 Bailey. That's not how this works. <laughs> Uh, I will confess, I'm planning to go to the bookstore with my parents this weekend, so I'll probably pick up some shame. Future shame. I'll probably get some comic book shame today. (laughs) Guys, we promise. Stay tuned. Next episode, we'll have it. Yeah. All right. Well, since we don't have any shame, I guess we have to talk about the books we read. I guess you could say we're made out of the... Right stuff? (laughs) What? I didn't hear what you said. (laughs) I didn't know what you said. What did you say? The fact when you say the right stuff with a question mark makes it sound so stupid. The right stuff? I will tell you right now, self-doubt, not part of the right stuff. Darn. I guess I don't have it then. Imposter syndrome, is that part of it? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, Toby, did you read a book this week? Yes, I did. I read The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. White suits. <laughs> Spaceman. <laughs> all right, all right. I like white, uh, white suits. <laughs> not white space suits, just white suits. Okay. Well, I think I know what Bale is getting at there. All right, here we go. Log line straight into it. In The Right Stuff, journalist Tom Wolfe's chronicle of the early space race, Wolfe attempts to solve the mystery of what enables some men to do the impossible, maintain their cool when strapped to a gigantic rocket about to be shot into space. And while Wolfe's answers and insight often feel true and correct, some aspects of this extremely dated book grate heavily on the modern reader. Well, the fact that you said men exclusively kind of tipped your hand there. Yeah. That's part of it, certainly. <laughs> um, so for an overview of the book, uh, Wolf starts his investigation into the right stuff uh, way back before the real space race began in the 30s and 40s when jet test pilots were beginning to be a thing. Uh, he kind of moves smoothly through the history of test pilots and shows how the personality of a typical test pilot became this certain thing. They're always calm. They're always cool. They're always completely in control. And they 100% always have an ego bigger than the sun. And they're great at beach volleyball. They are always like really sweaty and wet. <laughs> yeah. So he has this related image, um, this repeated image that's all really effective that he uses to describe the kind of culture of pilots and test pilots in this kind of area. Um, he calls it an invisible ziggurat, which is basically just another word for pyramid, which is basically all these pilots are in competition with each other. And each one of them wants to be the one highest up the pyramid. They want to be the one at the very edge of what is, you know, the fastest jet going the highest, you know, breaking speed records and putting themselves within like you know the razor's edge of literally dying the top gun if you will the top gun if you will thank you ice man <laughs> goose 
<laughs> uh, mouth-biting thing. Um, so I'll tell you right now, the right stuff is male pride and testosterone-fueled competition. That's it. Toxic masculinity. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's the right stuff. Spoiler alert. Um, now, that's an oversimplification for sure. And uh, Wolf does a, an absolutely incredible job of showing how this pretty simple idea becomes pretty, like, very subtle when it's applied to the context of these highly regimented society of pilots um, at this really high level. But if you really have to boil it down, yeah. It's male pride and testosterone fueled at competition. And I'm going to jump into my elves and orcs, which will give you more of an idea about the book. Sorry, I have a clarifying question. So is it interviews mm-hmm. or it's like the information that he's gathered, like a sort of a nonfiction exploration? Good like, question. What's the what's the format? It is not interviews. Um, he did extensive interviews, but it's all written like an extremely, extremely long article okay. uh, with a very strong, like certainly I don't think many, maybe like time would publish it. Like it wouldn't be published in the newspaper because his authorial voice is way too strong for mm-hmm. traditional journalism. Um, but it is basically like an extremely long article but based on interviews and all sorts of fact checking and stuff like that. So it is journalism, but it's very strongly flavored journalism. Yeah. Would you call it new journalism? <gasps> we'll get into that in the facts, nerds. <laughs> I'll get into that also a little bit later. But I'll jump into my elves. Uh, my first elf is that a wolf's prose feels true. It's what you feel when you read really great journalism. You trust him. You like him. You feel like he's sung an arm around your shoulder and he's giving you the lowdown about something not everybody gets to know. Um, he's really great at imagery and voice and tone. He's pretty funny. Um, it's nothing shocking to say <laughs> that Tom Wolf, surprise, is a very good writer. That's an elf. Um, Another elf is that his best achievement, in my opinion, is that he manages to be respectful and deferential to these men who do deserve, honestly, a lot of respect for what they did, while at the same time completely roasting them all the time. Um, He balances like depicting the danger that these men are in and their true courage in facing it, while at the same time making it clear that what allows them to do it is this basic locker room style competition where they are just kind of like bumping chests and really just want to show each other up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really entertaining and also insightful at the same time. It's like, yeah, you know rock stars and celebrities, but they at least have like an outlet. Yes. These guys are more just like, I want to be in control of this tiny little world that nobody else knows about. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. He does. He has a specific line where he's like actors and rock stars. They get to display their ego all the time while these test pilots, they have just as big or bigger egos, but they are confined to this kind of insular world where only usually only each other knows how good they all are. Mm. But then the space race provides this kind of outlet for seven or so of them to show the whole world that they have the right stuff and they are the most impressive men in the world. So do you think? They're all when they were kids on the playground being like, hey, look at me. I'm on the monkey bars. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Or my last elf is that um, he seems determined to give a realistic account of the space program uh, and the men in it, as opposed to the overly saccharine whitewashed press coverage of the time. Um, now, I wasn't alive at the time, um, so I don't really know what it was like. But he pokes a lot of fun at how interested the press at the time was of presenting these guys as good, God-fearing white boys who were all married and they're all happy and they're all the same and they're all what America's doing. Um, and he does a great job of peeling back the layers, showing that these people were real people and, you know, 
they had marriage problems and they had huge egos and they drank and drove all the time, although he kind of seems to enjoy that fact a lot. Yeah. He does like a lot of glorifying of drinking and driving, which is pretty problematic. Mm. But yet, it, honestly, he it does feel like he did an extraordinary amount of work, not just interviewing these people, but somehow managing to get past the innate defenses that all these guys have. They None of them want to really tell him the truth. They're all pretty buttoned up. They all have an interest in preserving the version of them that was presented by, say, Life magazine back in the day. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he was managed to get through that is very impressive. He found out how much they could really bench. Yeah. My favorite is that he describes uh, John Glenn as like the loser of the group, Aww. even though he was like one of the more extraordinary guys. But he was like the Presbyterian church boy who was spouting off all these lines about family and God in these press conferences. And all the other test pilots are like looking at him like, who's this nerd? <laughs> Um, so we'll go into my orcs. Oh boy, this book is a product of its time, especially in its treatment of women. Uh, there is one, count her, one woman in this book that is not in some way sexually involved with one of the pilots. I was going to say, is she a wife? <laughs> no, there the wives are in there. She is a psychiatrist who is roundly denigrated and definitely like razzed, especially because she's a woman. Kelly McGillis. <laughs> um, I will say Jackie Kennedy is in the book, but she's married to JFK, and that's her role in this book. So Now, did JFK have the right stuff? Ooh. Ooh. Oh, he definitely did. He loves talking about JFK. I think this should be the next category for when we're talking about different authors. Like, so... Do you think Joyce Carol Oates had the right stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, she does. Side note, I would say Dennis Quaid uh, narrated the audiobook that I read for this, and boy, did he love the opportunity to bust out his JFK impression. Oh my God. <laughs> Dennis Quaid, I feel like he, he, he read this audiobook for free. <laughs> so while Wolf does a good job of getting inside the heads of the wives of these men, and I think he is trying to be respectful of them in his own way. He never seems to have a single moment where he thinks of them as anything else than uh, the wives of the men with the right stuff. This in itself is not a huge orc because I think it's fairly true to what actually happened, because in a large way, these women's lives were, for better or worse, defined by their relationships to these men. Now, that's problematic, and these days we understand that. Um, I think it's maybe a little unfair to expect Wolf to be as open-minded as we are these days. Still, it seems like a glaring omission when read in the modern day. Um, the real, real cringe comes when Wolf describes in super gleeful and super gross detail what he thinks of the young women uh, who, in the words of Wolf's interview subjects, i.e. the pilots themselves, came to the bars where the pilots were known to hang out at with the exclusive aim of sleeping with the pilots. He never talked to any of these women. He talked to the pilots who gave him their impression of these women. And that impression is uh, pretty sexist, pretty brutal. And Wolf really, you know, you really lose a little bit of respect for him because he just loves it. Just he he describes multiple times in super gross detail. It's rough, rough, rough to read. Um, and it's especially glaring because he put so much deep and hard work into getting into the minds of the men in this book. And seems super content to not even give a second glance to these women. To be fair, they're not the focus of the book, but it just stands in stark relief. Um, my last little orc is that I found the actual space race stuff kind of repetitive and boring after a while. Um, once you solve the mystery of the right stuff, I'd say the beginning of the book is really interesting when you're talking about test pilots and you're kind of figuring out how this society works. That's really interesting and I really enjoyed it. Once you get into the actual space race, it's a lot of like 
similar style flights and kind of like interpersonal drama between the astronauts, which is interesting, but not quite as interesting as the, as the beginning of the book. So it slowed down for me a little bit toward the end. Overall, uh, while this book has its flaws, Wolf's writing carries it through incredibly well. And I'm gonna give it four stars. Oh, okay. I was expecting a three there. Four I guess star. Wolf writes good. Yeah, those those parts, I felt very strongly about those orcs, but they are a minor part of the book. I was trying to think if I could name four stars in the sky. I don't think I can. I can name two. Orion's Belt. Beetlejuice. Okay, well, that's interesting. I don't know that I'm going to read this one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you have to. If it doesn't interest you, then yeah. Well, I think instead I'll just watch um, For All Mankind on Apple+. Plus. Uh, transitioning. Uh, Andrew, do you have any <laughs> facts on Mr. Wolf? Wolf facts. Wolf Hungry like the wolf. Mm-hmm. Written about him, actually. He's hairy, and he lives in the woods. Oh, crap. I actually Wikipedia wolves. There are two Tom Wolf writers, which was confusing yeah. for a second for me, but oh. I got the right one, I think. So, Tom Wolf. There's a lot on him, so I have pared this down as much as possible, but here's what I got. Thomas Kennerly Wolf Jr. was born on March 2nd, 1930 in Richmond, Virginia. His father was an editor of the Southern Planter, and his mother was a garden designer. That sounds like a good marriage. It's like they're interested in the same stuff. Yeah, there's yeah. some there's some synergies there. That's yeah. the right stuff. Um, <laughs> he was a skilled student and a star baseball player um, ah. who would go on to turn down Princeton University in favor of attending Washington and Lee. Um, he excelled academically while at college and was a prominent figure on both the school newspaper and the literary magazine, which he founded. Ooh. Was it called like Howlin' at the Moon? It was called Shenandoah. Uh, while in college, he studied with a academic named Marshall Fishwick, um, who would become a great influence on his style. He encouraged students to take a more creative view of things uh, and specifically incorporate larger cultural pictures into their work. So that may have inspired the style of journalism he ended up doing. Um, after graduating and being cut from the New York Giants baseball team, his fastball wasn't fast enough, according to him, to be a professional. So at least he owns it. Uh, Wolf joined up with Fishwick at Yale and got his doctorate in American studies. Even while still completing his doctorate, Wolf began working as a journalist, first in Springfield, Massachusetts, and then for the Washington Post, where he gained acclaim for his humor and began to sort of experiment with style in his articles, bringing in fictional elements or more literary elements to it. He also, I thought this was funny, they really liked him at the Washington Post because he didn't care about politics. And like everybody else who came there was like, got to put me on Capitol Hill. I got to know what's going on. And Wolf was like, I'll just walk around and see what's going on (laughs) other places. I'll write about space. Why not? Wolf later relocated to New York and took a job with the New York Herald Tribune, where he would write for quite a while. This is not the origin story of the white suit. But this is something else. Uh, During a newspaper strike, Wolf took up a job writing an article for Esquire about hot rod car culture in Southern California. He apparently had an incredibly difficult time writing it. He's like, I know what I want to talk about, but I don't know how to put this into an article. And so eventually just sent like unedited notes to his editor Mm -hmm. who then was like, that's pretty good. And just published the article, the, the notes as the article with the like dear John or dear Gabriel or whatever his name was removed. <laughs> um, and the article was called, this is a long article title and very snappy. Uh, there goes Varoom Varoom, that candy colored tangerine flake streamline baby. <laughs> <laughs> and there's all kinds of punctuation in there. And candy colored is spelled with K's. Now that's new journalism. Do you think that his editor just didn't read it and was like, all right, publish? 
Well, apparently it was good because this would announce Wolf as a major figure of new journalism, which we've already sort of hinted at, which is a movement that focused on bringing literary tropes to nonfiction journalism, like extended dialogue, not trying to be dispassionate. People like Truman Capote, Joan Didion are also sort of associated with the movement. Yeah, spell checks for old journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And this article would be the title piece for Wolf's first published book, um, which was a collection of his journalism. And they removed the there goes Varum Varum part in that book is titled That Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamlined Baby. Varum Varum was the best part. That would be a good title for a book, honestly. Varum Varum. Varum Varum. That was the original title for The Right Stuff. (laughs) (laughs) More like Boom Boom. <laughs> there you go. Following this new vein of nonfiction, Wolf would go on to write the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which chronicled friend of the show Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, and used saturation reporting, um, which is a style of research where you just kind of remain around your subject matter for a really long time in a kind of casual way to observe them and like let their guards down. It's like almost famous. Yeah, exactly like almost famous. Like being around them versus trying to like sit down for an interview where they present their style like getting the full picture that way. Did he remember that they're not his friends? He fell in love with Kate Hudson several times. (laughs) He would go on to continue publishing influential articles. He became sort of this cultural mainstay and he often like skewered popular figures. Uh, in 1979, he published The Right Stuff, which was immensely popular and followed by an even more popular film adaptation. And in 1987, Wolf published his first novel. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Bonfire of the Vanities. That's on my list. It's on Bailey's list. I have DNF'd it. It was highly successful as well, though the movie adaptation by Brian De Palma was not. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He wrote several subsequent novels, but they were sort of diminishingly received in terms of their acclaim, even starting a war of words between Tom Wolfe, John Updike, John Irving, and Norman Mailer, culminating in Wolfe referring to them as his three stooges in an article, and I believe in the New York Times. Man, how funny is it that he wrote uh, a book about male pride and ego and then started a war with Norman Mailer? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to say anything during a review, but I feel like some of those... same things he's pointed out in The Right Stuff are President Mr. Wolf. He remained a popular cultural figure until his death in 2018 at the age of 88. He has two children, Alexandra and Thomas Kennerly III, uh, with his wife Sheila, who designed covers for Harper's Magazine. Mm-hmm. Now, I got weird facts about Tom Wolf. You ready? Yep. Yep. Let's yeah. do it. Before he had really risen to prominence as a journalist, he attracted attention by predicting JFK's assassination. Wait. Really, what he did what? was... He wrote about um, this Japanese scholar uh, named George Oshawa's theory based on the Senpaku condition, which is when you can see three sides of the white of your eye, it means that your death is imminent. And he wrote about that in terms of uh, JFK, and then JFK was assassinated. Okay. Suspicious. Sounds like it's Senpaku, Paul, but all right. Uh, He had a very distinct look, which we've been alluding to. He always wore a trademark white suit. This apparently caused a stir because he started wearing it in winter. (gasps) A taboo at the time, you know, never white after Labor Day. What a stupid world we live in. Um, (laughs) But the origin story of this is he bought a white suit that he thought looked real good to wear in summer, but it was too heavy for the summer. So he waited till the winter to wear it. And then he liked that it disarmed people when they saw him in a white suit in winter. So he just started wearing it all the time. Our world has changed, people. (laughs) He used to disarm people by wearing a white suit. I mean, if if I came into work and saw a person in a full white suit, I would be disarmed. That's true. What if you came home and Dylan was wearing a full white suit? What if you came home and Maggie was wearing a full white suit? I was going to say, it'd be covered in stains. (laughs) 
So he liked it because it disarmed people. He also liked it because it connected him to his like southern roots. It's sort of a southern look. But he always wore it. He did not like blogs or Wikipedia aggressively, which I <laughs> he said everything on Wikipedia was made up. Um, so thank you, Wikipedia, uh, for contributing to this research. I was um, going to say, what, is, what does it say in his Wikipedia article that he objects to? He is credited with coining the terms radical chic, the right stuff, the me decade, statusphere, and good old boy. Um, however, <laughs> is sometimes incorrectly attributed as the coiner of the term trophy wife. He did not come up with that. He is one of several authors to have appeared on The Simpsons, uh, in Wolf's case, multiple times. The episode Flanders Ladder was dedicated to him after his death. And Wolf's white suit is the target of a joke in which uh, Homer spills chocolate on it. And he tears off his white suit to reveal an identical white suit underneath. <laughs> um, nice. Tom Wolf's legs appear in John Lennon and Yoko Ono's art film Up Your Legs Forever, where they pan up his legs. Um, okay. And if you want to watch 70 minutes of people's legs being panned up, search out Up Your Legs Forever. Are they naked legs? They are naked legs. They're not clothed in white suit pants? <laughs> Whose legs could these be? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, uh, this is my favorite fact I found. The notable network, The Speed Channel, <laughs> produced a uh. 2006 episode of their, I suppose, wildly popular show called um, Unique Whips, uh, called <laughs> The White Stuff. This is the name of the episode. The White Stuff, huh. in which they customized the interior of Wolf's Cadillac to match his white suit. So he was on Pimp My Ride? Yeah, is this a far less successful version of Pimp My Ride? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yo, dog, and, I heard you like new journalism and white suits. <laughs> and that is what I have on Tom Wolf. Enjoy. Wow. You gotta find that Great episode. Great research. All right, well, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolf, four stars. Tom, we'll catch back with you with Bonfire of the Vanities. Who knows when that will be picked? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know. <laughs> Uh, so, Bailey, yes. Um, I know you're getting really excited about Tom Wolfe's white Cadillac, but would you get in a car with him and drive overnight with him? And would you survive it? <gasps> no, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't survive or I wouldn't get in the car. I read a book called Survive the Night by Riley Sager. Survive the night belongs to white cars, belongs to serial killers, question mark. Ooh. Ooh. Um, so Survive the Night, this came out recently. Um, it is a female-centered thriller. Uh, the main character is Charlie. She is in college in 1991. I think she's like a college junior. Um, and she's decided to drop out of school because she's depressed after her best friend and roommate, Maddie, has been killed by a campus serial killer, which, I mean, is very upsetting. Um, and Fair. She decides she needs to get home right away, and so she goes to a campus ride board. Um, young Pedros won't know um, before Uber. <laughs> <laughs> Old Pedros will remember. They had like bulletin boards that's like, I need a ride from here to here on this day. And people were like, I have space in my car and I'm going here. So she went to the mm -hmm. ride board, found a man who had a space in his car, and got in a car with him at nighttime. And then quickly wonders if this could be the serial killer who killed her friend. I was going to say, young Pages would also not know that those ride boards featured prominently in a lot of serial killer stories. And by I mean stories, I mean real life serial killers used them a lot. I mean, this is why we invented Uber was we were always like, hey, guys, should we stop? Having Stop this. Shouldn't we have we like a record of who's driving this car? Um, I'll say that's a killer Oh, pun not intended, but I'll put myself on the back anyway. That's a killer uh, setup. I, I'm intrigued. I yeah, like it. That's, that's, I mean, I was all in. Also, she is a film student. She studies film theory and... I'm out. I'm out. Uh, nope, not reading. Uh, and I majored in film studies, you know, I'm cool. 
So she does sometimes disassociate from reality and imagine stuff is scenes from a movie. And it's a problem in her life because she doesn't know what's real and what's fake. Wow. Which makes it easy for her to be gaslit or to be tricked or to just question this man you know, next to her driving. And easy for the author to write cinematic set pieces. There you go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is obviously a really great premise. Um, it would make for, ironically, an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Great setup, contained space. And although, you know, you'd hope that you wouldn't get in that car, you could also imagine yourself being in that car. And like, what what, what can you do when you're speeding down the highway and you're like, uh, I don't know about this guy. They can't jump out of the car. Can I wave to another car? Like, it, it's that yeah. sort of idea. Classic thriller scenario. Yeah. So my basic take on the book is that it is, um, as Toby would say, it's a candy book. It's a beach read. Like, you could read it in one sitting. I think I read it in one day. There's short chapters that just propel you forward, a really tight pace, lots of mysteries and reveals that keep you going. Um, and you're generally interested to know who the killer is, if, if it's this guy, how did he do do it? How will she escape? Et cetera, et cetera. Still sounding fun, but there's like a weird little tone in your voice. I feel like you're maybe a serial killer or something's coming. Uh-oh. Well, okay. So those are the elves. I have a few orcs. In order to make the premise work, our protagonist has to make a lot of, I would say, quote, dumb choices mm. where you have at a certain point have to be like, girl, girl, what are you doing? You can just say dumb. Dumb. Dumb choices. Um, and like, you know, People talk about the gift of fear. Like if you're afraid in the situation, maybe you should not get back in that car or not get in the car. Um, But she just keeps getting in the car. And obviously she needs to for the book, but it can get frustrating. But I guess the author sets it up as she blames herself for her friend's um, death. So she thinks that anything bad that happens to her, she kind of deserves it. But and I guess Mm. that that's virtue of, you know, a 19 year old. But it gets kind of frustrating when you're like, girl, just just get out of the car. Don't you don't have yeah. to do this. I always find those kind of narrative justifications a little bit frustrating. Like they are somewhat believable, but I know exactly the kind of justification you're talking about. And yeah. Yeah. Because she's a film student, there are some cutesy references. Like she's named after the protagonist Charlie from the Hitchcock film Shadow of a Doubt, which is also about maybe a serial killer and gaslighting. So there's a lot of like mm. You know, it could be cute. It could be cutesy. Um, But my main critique is that sort of the first third, the first half of the book, it gets repetitive. The idea of is this a serial killer or is it not? So um, this is a quote at the end of a chapter. As the Grand Am continues down the highway, heading farther into the uncertain night, Charlie is conscious of four things. None of it might have happened or all of it might have happened. One of them would make Josh completely harmless. The other might mean he's the campus killer. And Charlie has no idea which one is the truth. So like pretty much every chapter ends with that. It's like, is he the killer? He could be. I love how like in thriller books, it's like, but she was only certain of one thing. In this case, it's like she was only certain of four things. A few sub things in there thrown in. <laughs> well, it's also like she was also certain of one thing that she was uncertain of everything. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that gets kind of repetitive where it's like, yeah, we get it. Uh-huh. 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 Give me four reasons why it's repetitive. <laughs> it, it feels like um, I don't know if you guys read like Goosebumps growing up or, or Christopher Pike novels, but sometimes they would end every chapter with a like, oh, and then she screamed. And then the next chapter begins with because she saw a spider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it keeps you reading, but it's kind of like, OK. But then the last half of the book, I will say 
no spoilers, but they're not in the car the whole time. So it kind of switches it up. It switches up. get into a boat. (laughs) They switch up the point of view. It's not all from Charlie's point of view. And that makes it speed up and get more exciting. So all this to say, this is a solid beach read. I don't think the writing is particularly great. So I'm going to give it a solid three stars, maybe like a 3.5, but I'll say three. If you like this kind of book, I think it would be a fun candy read. I don't think you need to buy a fancy hardcover edition, but... If you're on a long car trip and you need a thing to listen to. There you go. If you mm-hmm. want to read an audiobook in the car, survive the night. Three stars. Sweet. Andrew, did you survive the research for this project? <laughs> oh, no. Is Andrew there? Did he survive? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Faked you out. You thought I didn't guess. No, I did research. This was relatively easy because there's a big reveal that's going to happen here. <gasps> she, oh my she's God. Tom Wolfe's long lost daughter. He's related to the Saffron Fowers. He's, he's a serial killer. <laughs> Riley Sager was born Todd Ritter. He attended <gasps> and lol, grew up in a ranch style house in Pennsylvania. The reason I <gasps> said lol there is because this is one of like eight sentences on his Wikipedia page Uh-oh. that he grew up in a ranch style house. I guess that's really important. Like Charlie, he was a film studies major. <gasps> So Riley Sager is a pen name for Todd Ritter. Before gaining acclaim as an author, he was a journalist and editor, uh, most notably working for the New Jersey Star-Ledger for many years. Around 2015, he was laid off from that job, and this sparked his writing career. He had actually published several novels under his own name before this and under a different pen name. But uh, this galvanized him, taking one last shot at becoming a successful uh, novelist. Uh, In several interviews, he mentions that this was an inflection point. He had this idea for a book, and if it wasn't successful, he was going to give up on writing and said, quote, he wanted to go back to school to become a librarian. Also around this time, uh, that Ritter, at the suggestion of his agent, changed his nom de plume to Riley Sager in an effort to present more gender neutral. I was going to say, I I thought this was a woman. And it's kind of targeted at women because it's a female thriller. And I wondered if it's like the opposite of when women would write under male pen names. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And this coincided with the publishing process and like the writing process for his first successful novel, which was called Final Girls, which would go on to be Sager's first hit. And I mean, it's very forthcoming that that's why he changed his pen name to Riley Sager. Fair play. And I think he chose like not a full blown female name just so you can put it back on the reader where it's like well that's on you i mean one of my <laughs> one of my best friends from college is named riley and he is a man i was gonna say the only rileys i know are male why did i think it was a woman because <gasps> of the movie Pisces. inside out uh he has published five novels under the name riley sager all bestsellers uh final girls the last time i lied lock every door home before dark and survive the night the sixth sager comes out in june and is called the house across the lake i feel like you could string all those titles together and have a sentence <laughs> Survive Almost. the night. The final girls who survive the night across the lake. Home uh-huh. before dark. That's only three out of six. Uh-huh. <laughs> he lives in Princeton, New Jersey now. So I hope he goes to Hokey Haven all the time. What color is suits? <laughs> so the rest of what I have here is uh, quotes from some interviews. This is from an interview uh, with the Los Angeles Daily News by Kelly Sky Fodrowski. This is about him uh, when he was laid off from his long-term job as a journalist. It was really hard, he said. Desperation can be a really great motivator, though. That's how I felt at the time. I had published a few books under my real name, and they did nothing. Then I was laid off, and I literally couldn't find another job. I was applying to be a writer at, like, a pet food trade magazine, and I could not get a job. I was so angry and frustrated, but I had this idea for a book. My agent loved it. I just wasn't going to rest until I got it done and then just see what happened. I just got lucky that Final Girls really did blow up. I keep thinking it's going to be like, it sounds a lot like the Final Girls support group. No, I was reading when 
I don't know enough about it because I'm just reading the Amazon description. It's literally the same plot. Oh, that's got a sting. Which one came out first? I don't the, know. The, the, uh, Raleigh Stearns came out first. Uh-oh, Deep Impact. Yeah, I would, I would assume so in 2015, it's yeah. It's literally about a girl that survives a, it says a horror movie style massacre, and then she meets up with a bunch of other girls that survived their own ordeals. Oh, boy. And they support group. Grady. 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 <laughs> The rest of this is from a Rolling Stone interview with Brenna Ehrlich, and this is specifically about Survive the Night. Question, where did the germ of this book come from? (laughs) Well, it started with wanting to do the complete opposite from my previous book, Home Before Dark, which was just so structurally complex and a book within a book. Uh, It was exhausting and so difficult to write that I just wanted to make it easier on myself this time. He sounds like a very transparent person. So I just had this idea of writing something almost in real time that the events in the book take place for almost as long as it takes for you to read the book. I liked having the idea of isolation, and this was before COVID-19, so this idea of just basically having two characters in a car, and one of them suspects the other one of doing horrible things, and the other one suspects that she suspects him of doing horrible things, I just wanted to make a very streamlined thriller. And he succeeded. Nice. Yeah. Um, why Charlie's fascination with movies? Did you share that passion, or did you have to study up? Like Charlie, the main character in the book, I was a film studies major in college. It was a great gig. Our classes were, we'd watch a movie, then we'd talk about it, and then we'd write a paper. It was fun, and it did not prepare you for the real world whatsoever. That's the true horror story in this. (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Uh, But the film aspect, I knew was going to be a very integral part of her character, and I really wanted to bask in the nostalgia of 1991. I chose that time period for a reason, because I was a senior in high school, and I remember everything about that time, so I didn't need to do any research. Love it. Fair enough. I feel like a lot of authors do that when they write high school stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This question, at what point in the writing process do you decide on the twist? Uh, I just thought this answer was interesting. He says, usually it's something I have in mind from the very beginning on one occasion, and I won't say what book. It didn't hit me till halfway through. I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, I have to do this here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he wrote like half the book of the house across the lake and there was no lake and he's like uh-oh oh no i have to add a house oh, i gotta add a lake house <laughs> with keanu reeves in it this is a question final question from that rolling stone interview you tend to write women do you see yourself as writing women indefinitely or do you have some story ideas where the main character is a man which i thought like was an interestingly phrased question do you care about your work or do you just like not care <laughs> sager says Well, it really started with Final Girls, which had the trope been different, had it been Final Boys, I think my career would have been very different. But I knew if I'm going to write about Final Girls, it has to be written from the point of view of a final girl. It turned out that I was pretty good at it because I don't see my characters through the lens of gender. I see them through a character, like this specific person. The next book I'm thinking about writing could go either way. I still have a lot of thinking to do about that. Go either way, but it will be a woman. I'm a final boy. (laughs) (laughs) But Andrew, the final question, does Riley Sager have the right stuff? (gasps) Well, based on what Toby said, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are excellent facts, Andrew. Thank you. That is Survive the Night by Riley Sager. Three stars. Um, speaking of, you know, racing cat and mouse games. Andrew, do, uh-huh. you have, do you have a game for us? I do. I do. I'm back in the saddle. Ooh. Sweet. Who'll get to the top of the two realist cigarette? <gasps> mm. <laughs> All right. The name of this week's game is Hi-Fi, Sci-Fi, or Space Guy. Ooh, I love <laughs> Ooh, it. Andrew's back, guys. Andrew's freaking back. Guess who's the back? The title doesn't make a lot of sense, but I came up with it and I stuck with it before I <laughs> made the game. It's fun to say. So the way the game will work is I'm going to give you a name, and that is either a movie, a NASA mission, or both. Ooh. Ooh. All right, how do we um, uh, buzz in, buzz Aldrin in? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good one. Everyone's allowed to play because I have enough to go around. Even Dylan? (gasps) Even Dylan can play if he wants. Yay. Boo. Yay. Um, And the way it'll work is I'll say the title and you can buzz in by saying, 
Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> vroom, vroom. <laughs> Initially, it was going to be something else, but that came out in our podcast. So let's go with vroom, vroom. Has to be. Um, all right. So, y'all ready? Yeah. Ready. Vroom, vroom. Leviathan. Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. Toby? Both. That is incorrect. It is just a movie, but it is two different movies. I I knew it was a movie. I wasn't sure about the space. I knew it was a movie. But which movie was it? Are you thinking about the fish documentary or the 1989 panned as being a clear knockoff of the Abyss and Alien movie? (laughs) Yes, that's two movies. Unfortunately, Toby, that is no points for you, but there's plenty more chances. (sighs) Deep Impact. Vroom, vroom. Toby was first again. Hmm. Oh, you can't just buzz in and not have the answer, Toby. Uh, Dylan, you did, it's you your didn't turn now. Set the rules correctly, did you? <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, we're spreading anyway, the wealth here. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say NASA mission. No, sorry, I mean movie. Both. No, it's both. Toby, it's so obviously right, a movie. So Toby is disqualified. Dylan is correct. It is both. <laughs> what? They had a NASA mission called Deep Impact. <laughs> I yep. know it's so weird. It, it was after the movie, and it was literally a one-way trip to a comet. Yeah, it's a, it's the comet <laughs> mission that they took those photos on. They called it Deep Impact. What? After the movie? Yeah. Is there an Armageddon? Yep. So it's one point for Dylan. Good job. And uh, you know what? I feel good giving you that point, Dylan, because you actually did know the mission, which I'm surprised by. (laughs) Good job. Yeah, that's impressive. Clementine. Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. Toby. Clementine. Now let's see here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to change the rules if you keep doing this. Uh, I'll say both, Andrew. Both. That is correct. It is both a movie from 2019 and a 1994 project meant to test the long-term viability of space shuttles. Mm. All right. Now that I've looked like not an idiot on one of them, I'll stop buzzing in as fast as I can. (laughs) One point for Dylan. One point for Toby. Uh, Juno. Broom, broom. broom. Bailey. (laughs) See, they buzz in like losers. Look at them. They had such a sad... Broom, broom. Sad broom. Um, Bailey. I think it's, it's both. It's definitely a movie. Um, and it's also a goddess, so I'm going to say both. It is. It's both. Uh, it is a movie starring Elliot Page and an ongoing observation of Jupiter. You can follow them on Twitter. Yeah. Mm. We're so all tied? everyone has a point. Good job. Yeah. Saturn 3. Vroom, vroom. Vroom. Bailey? I think it's just space. Anyone else have an answer? I'll say both. Vroom, vroom. Both. All right. Nope. No one picked the right answer. It is just a sci-fi <laughs> no. movie. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it, is just, yeah. it is just a movie. Saturn 3, 1981's Kirk Douglas, Harvey Keitel, and Farrah Fawcett vehicle, written by Martin Amos. Money, money, money. Described as the nadir of Harvey Keitel's career by his biography. Yeah, Martin Amos wrote a sci fi movie called Saturn 3. There you go. I feel safe in saying that's probably a very bad movie. Well, so did Harvey Keitel's biographer. All right, let's do a few more. Glory. Vroom, vroom. Dylan. Uh, both. That is correct. It was ironically an unsuccessful launch of a space shuttle and a movie starring uh, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick, and Andre Brower. Is one of these Apollo 13? <laughs> no, I did not include that because I felt like it was too obvious. <laughs> or Apollo 11. But is there a movie called Astro 2? Vroom, vroom. Bailey? Ah! <laughs> no, everyone is cheating. You guys are. Uh, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say both. It's just a NASA mission, and it was a 1995 mm-hmm. follow-up mission to Astro One. Dylan is running away with this by being one point ahead of everybody else. <laughs> All right, we only have a couple more. Project AKO. Vroom vroom. Uh, vroom vroom. Toby. Both. Incorrect. It is just a movie, a Japanese <clears throat> anime film from 1986. Ugh. All right, Calypso. Vroom vroom. 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 Bailey. I'm gonna say both. Now. Spell Calypso. C-A-L-Y-P-S-O. So no. What? Oh. <laughs> what? 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 
That's just a movie. If you'd spelled it C-A-L-I-P-O-S-O, it would yeah. have also tracked to the cloud aerosol LIDAR and infrared pathfinder satellite observation, a.k.a. Okay, Calypso. Okay, Bailey gets it. Bailey gets a point. <laughs> all right, yeah, you'll get a point for that. Uh, it's also a 2019 film. Um, all right, last one. Toby, I'm going to remove you from this situation because what? you only have one correct what? answer and the other ones have two. So we need Just a winner. Just make it worth four. Okay, you don't this have is the worth right 100 stuff. points. Yes. <laughs> this one's worth 100 points. Toby's convinced me. Moonwalker. From Vroom. Vroom. Toby. Both. Anyone else have an answer? Uh, just movie. Bailey is correct. Yeah, I get 100 yeah. points. Bailey gets 100. So <laughs> Bailey wins 102 to 2 to 1. Uh, oh, Moonwalker man. is, in fact, a movie, a 1988 anthology film about Michael Jackson. I win. Uh, looks like a lady's got <laughs> the right stuff this time. Mm. That feels appropriate. <laughs> 2022. Uh, that was a fun game, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, good game. Thank you. Good game. Um, now's the time on the podcast where Dylan gets to shine. Dylan, it's time for you to choose books at random from our shelves. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. The right choosening. <laughs> well, Toby, you thought that this book lacked a lot of woman characters and it just stuck with significant others? Uh-huh. Well, then we'll see how you enjoy number 41, The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. Oh, th- oh. There's a new show out, Toby. This is perfect timing. There is. Okay, wow. I have a book by her on my list as well, but it's not that one. I'm excited to read this book. <laughs> um, it's very highly regarded, as I understand it. I don't think I know anyone who's read it who has a negative opinion of it. Um, have you? any of you guys read it? Yes. I have a mixed opinion. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> Okay. But I remember, Toby, this was like way back in the day when you said you wanted to try romance. We asked Pejos for some recommendations, and this was one of them. Good memory, yeah. Well, well, here we go. (laughs) Hopefully, if you've been listening for like more than a year, (laughs) you'll remember. Awesome. Cool. Well, what what about me? Well, Belly. Yes. You have to just let it happen, okay? No, I want to do it my way. No, no. I can choose whenever I want, all right? Even if it's not the best, even if it's not perfect, Mm because you have number 48, the Imperfectionist by Tom Rotman. Imperfectionist. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, this one is one, another one, Dylan, that I took from your mom after she'd finished reading it and was like, I'm just going to donate it. Do you want it? And I'm like, oh, it looks like it's about writing because there's a typewriter on the front. Sure. But you got to stop assuming that. So we'll see. <laughs> but I'm excited. Cool. Nice. Um. Okay. So that means in two weeks... Andrew is reading Yes, Please by Amy Poehler, and I will be reading The Imperfectionist by Tom Rockman. Nice. Sounds like a good episode. We'll see you guys then. If you can survive it. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. If you think you have the right stuff to survive the night, Ooh. then you can go over to Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. It helps boost visibility of the show so other people can find it. Uh, and it will indeed prove that you have the right stuff and can simultaneously survive the night. And if you want to help us out a different way, uh, you can just turn to the person who's driving you through the night uh, from your college town to your hometown that you found on a ride board and tell them that instead of worrying if the other one's a murderer, you could put on a podcast and listen together. So tell a friend or whoever's keeping you captive in a car about this podcast because word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. No, this is the right way to get new listeners, Dylan. Uh, (laughs) Word of mouth is our best way of finding new people. 
please help us out if you can. In 2023, I want exclusively serial killers to be listening to this podcast. I was going to say, you pick up people, get them in the car, and force them to listen to the podcast. <laughs> it doesn't really help our downloads, though, because it's still only one person downloading it. Mm. That's true. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.